on today's episode of Sports and the World, we're going under the sea. I have my NBA, LFL, and WWE report, and of course, my big picture. That's today on Sports and the World. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening to us, more importantly, however you're listening to us, whether it's through Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or any of the many podcasting platforms, thank you for making sports and the world a part of your day. I'm Ladarius Brown. I hope all of you had a very good week so far. And if you didn't have a great week, I hope the weekend is better and that your next week is awesome. And with that being said, let's dive right on in. Now you heard me talk about in the intro, we're going under the sea. And for Disney fans, we all know The Little Mermaid. So, it really took me aback to, to see the internet rage and the hashtags not my aerial was really popular. When Halle Bailey one half of the R&B group Chloe and Halle was cast as Ariel in Disney's upcoming live action adaptation of Little Mermaid which is set to come out of believe next year and on her Instagram it was a dream come true and mind you that's very important to where the direction I'm going to go with this because Representation is important. To see someone like you on a major, major platform gives you that hope and belief that you could be the same thing. And and I think where Twitter and everybody lost their minds was 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 that was some of it racial? Absolutely. But some of it came from, oh, that's, that's not my Ariel because it looks nothing like Ariel. Well, let me tell you something really briefly. And I've made this same point in many times when I talk about James Bond. When Ian Fleming wrote the James Bond books... He never specified James Bond to be a specific color. He never specified James Bond to to be of a particular look. He wanted James Bond to be, you know, in the books, in all the movies, portrayed as a suave. He's 007. He's 007. Never said that, you know, James Bond had to be a white guy. Never said that. Hans Christian Anderson and Little Mermaid never said that Ariel had to be white. That's the way it was written. And I've always said that, you know, one of the things that I love about literature that you can interpret. As long as you don't stray away from the core of telling the story, which someone else mentioned who's very synonymous with The Little Mermaid. And I'll bring that up in a moment. You don't get away from the story. So... And I'll get back to the James Bond point in just a minute. 
But the person I'm talking about who is synonymous with the Little Mermaid is Jodie Benson. For Disney fans, you know who she is, and I know who she is. But for those who may not know, she was the original voice of Ariel in the 1989 film. So it's in essence celebrating 30 years this year. And she said at a Florida Supercon, according to People.com, I think the most important thing is to tell a story. And she goes on to say, quote, And no matter what we look like on the outside, no matter our race, our nation, the color of our skin, our dialect, whether I'm tall or thin, we really need to tell the story. And she's absolutely right. We get lost as people when we change because it's different we're used to seeing Ariel as white it's like Santa Claus well we've always known Santa to be a white guy but you see a black Santa like oh no that's not my Santa Claus or in the case of James Bond you know if Idris Elba like oh that's not my James Bond why because they're not the color that you're used to that makes you uncomfortable that doesn't make you a racist some of the stuff on twitter was borderline racist but for some people seeing something that's different scares them change but the way I look at it is having representation it's why I say films like Black Panther and shows like Black Lightning and the movie Crazy Rich Asians are important because it represents a culture, represents a race that otherwise have not been represented in film or in television. And it's important to see yourself on the screen to believe that, you know what? You know, for that aspiring filmmaker, for that actor or actress, like there are roles out there that lets us embrace our culture and our race. And I'm going to get into some of the things in a few minutes that's going to what I call whitewashing in a minute. But it's important to see yourself on that screen. And Halle Bailey, a dream come true. She gets to be Ariel. Ariel is black. What's the problem? It's just like with The Lion King being readapted. You know, it's being adapted into a live action film. Okay, you know, everybody in there, like, did Zazu have a specific color? No, the voice of the person was black. The, the, you know, the per- I think Billy Eichner is voicing, or John Oliver, excuse me, is voicing Zazu. That's fine. It, it doesn't matter, because we never assumed Zazu had a color, except for the color on the screen. We never assumed he was white, black, or anything like that. We never assumed it. And Disney, historically, has done a great job with diversity. Even if it took some years. And I want to talk about the Disney princesses and some of the, the milestones. And I want to thank, you know, Smithsonian.org and DisneyExaminer.com for helping you know, with some of this excellent, excellent information. The first Disney princess was Snow White, or for some Persephone, which was based on Snow White. That was in 1937. 
So there you go. So fast forward 55 years later, 1992, you get Jasmine, the first non-white Disney princess. And then you fast forward another 17 years and you get the first African-American princess in Tiana from Princess and the Frog. And throughout, you know, may not be Disney princesses, but yet Pocahontas, Mulan, and most recently, three years ago, Moana. You have diverse. That's why I think Disney gets it right. You know, it's it's important. Disney understands. It's important to see yourself on that screen. You know, to see a Native American woman, to see, you know, an Asian woman, to see someone of Pacific Islander Samoan on the screen. It's important. But I want to go to a couple of films, five films in particular, and I really want to delve into this, because like I said with whitewashing, and whitewashing in essence is basically taking a role that's going to be based on one race, making it white. And some of the films you may know, and some you may be like, and I want to thank Ranker.com. They helped me. Some I knew. And I was like, there was one or two of them like, really? Because even some I didn't know. That's the importance of doing research. You know, for this podcast is I learned something right along with you. So here's a couple of films and their roles. So Scarlett Johansson was cast as Major Motococo. And I apologize for the enunciation. In the film Ghost in the Shell. Obviously, the you know is based on an Asian role. Scarlett Johansson, white. The movie Argo, which won an Academy Award. Ben Affleck, white, played Tony Mendez, the main character, who's Mexican-American. Let that sink in. The movie Aloha, which I didn't see in the box office, none of my else saw it either, had Allison Ning, a fourth Hawaiian and a fourth Chinese. So basically, half Chinese, half American. Who gets cast in that role? Emma Stone, white. Goku, Dragon Ball Evolution. For gamer fans, you know that's an Asian role. It went to Justin Chatwin, who's white. And folks, this is the biggest one of all. I kind of like this movie. Then the movie Pay It Forward. Kevin Spacey, I know, I know. We know Kevin Spacey's white. But did you know that the character that he played, Ruben St. Clair, was based on a black person? And what makes that worse is that it was more heavily involved with the white community. But they had a white guy playing the film and nobody was none the wiser. So we let that go. And I'm like, that's the problem. And then, just for the sickness of, you know, for the interest of fairness, for Gridiron Game, Sean Porter, the coach, white guy, played by Samoan Dwayne The Rock Johnson. To put a bow on this point, Disney 
did nothing wrong. Halle Bailey did nothing wrong. The people who are against this are those who are against change. If you're against change, listen, change comes in different forms and sometimes it's, you know, in an open society it shouldn't be forced upon us, but this is not forced upon us. It's still the same story of Ariel. And she was living under the sea. Her friends, the Bashman, and Flounder. It's important that a little girl, whether she's black, Asian, Native American, see themselves, and Disney has done that. That, you know, I can be a princess too. Just like many people felt that when they saw Barack Obama be president, like I can be president. Representation is important. And not all white people are to blame for this. Because you have some people of color who have a problem with it, and that's fine too. But the one thing you can't stop is the imagination of a little girl who wants to be represented. And more importantly, a culture that wants to be represented. That they may otherwise not have been. And likability for the populace is not important but it's important to them and what's important to me is is that we come on right back on the other end of this break and we'll talk about the NBA to talk about Paul George, talk about Kawhi and so much more, that's next on Sports and the World back into sports and the world and let's go into my NBA report as most of you know by now Kawhi Leonard the biggest free agent in this year's class signed with the Los Angeles Clippers which was a surprise to me quite honestly because I had no idea where he was going I I said stay in Toronto because it's the East but he decided to go back to LA which shocked people but this is the other shocking thing because instead of him signing the four-year max contract, he signed a three-year, $103 million contract. which has a player option for the third year, but more importantly, he could opt out after the second year. Now, I'll get to why all that is significant in just a minute. But before Kawhi signed and went to L.A., he needed a running mate. So, Jerry West, in that front office, traded for Paul George. And the Clippers gave up Shai Gilgis Alexander, Nilo Gallinari, four unprotected first-round picks, a protected first-round pick, and two pick swaps. And the Kawhi Leonard contract information was per thespun.com and cbssports.com provided the Paul George trade information. So, I want to go back to why that three-year contract was significant for Kawhi Leonard. Because, you see, he's going to hit the 10-year mark in 2021. And that's going to allow him to opt out and receive a max contract worth $35 million a year. And guess who has the same type of contract? 
Paul George as a player option for the third year as well. So in essence, we could see in the next two or three seasons that the window for the Clippers to win a title could be closing, which is in which is important because, and I think the big winners here are not just the Clippers for getting Kawhi and Paul George, but it's, it's the Thunder because they got four first round picks, a protected first round pick, and two pick swaps. And then you throw on top of that, you get Shai Gilgis Alexander, a nice young player, and expiring contract in Danilo Gallinari. That's not bad. And OKC won because see, here's the thing. They also traded Jeremy Grant for Denver's first round pick. And so, and according to Zach Lowe and Woj, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski, but that particular pick, you know, it comes with certain reported, you know, protections. A top 10 protection over the next three drafts converts to two, two second rounders. After that, in the unlikely event, Denver does not convey it before, which, as they say, is highly unlikely. Do you know how many first round picks OKC has right now? You know, they had 13. But then, they went and traded Russell Westbrook to Houston. Got four more. And OKC got Chris Paul. I'll see how that works out. Because there's maybe a good chance they may buy him out. It's it's clearly a rebuild in OKC. Clearly. When I think of what's going on over in Oklahoma City right now, yeah, it's a full rebuild, but it tells me two things. They're taking the Boston Celtics approach, getting these draft picks, and I, they're, they're not going to draft 17 players, you know, 13, they're not going to draft 13 players. They're going to convert those and package it in a deal if they can. Once they feel they're in a position to compete in the West again to get a superstar. Because all those years, Boston said, and listen, they hit home runs with Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. Listen, Danny Ainge knows how to draft. And getting those picks were not just drafting all, you know, drafting all those players. It's used as tools. They're like poker chips. And those poker chips are very valuable at the table. And and right now, OKC, and essentially they flip Russell Westbrook for an aging point guard and a couple of more first-round picks. So what that tells me is, is, is that the second thing it tells me, I should say, is, is that OKC could be a contender the next three to five years. And they also win because, listen, Paul George may not be a Clipper for the duration of his contract. Kawhi Leonard may not be. So the Clippers won, they got the duo, but OKC won because they got the future and would also support it. 
that if the NBA decides to let high schoolers play, you get younger players you can develop. Billy Donovan, what made him great at the University of Florida, Gator fan talking, is that he was great at developing young talent. This guy developed Joakim Noah, Coy Brewer, and those guys, they won back-to-back national championships. He groomed those guys. That Billy Donovan's bread and butter. And I think Sam Presti understands that. That's why now they have 17 first-round picks. Because the two of those are pick swaps they got from, from Houston. Developing young talent. That's what Billy Donovan is. Not to say that he couldn't coach Westbrook and Paul George. Because there was reported friction between them. But now you get all of these picks. And now you can convert and you can be something the next three to five years. Billy Donovan has job security because he is what Brad Stevens was when he came from Butler. Had a bunch of young players, a lot of draft picks to kind of control what type of team you want to be. And I'm not saying Sam Presley's Danny Ainge and I'm not saying Billy Donovan is Brad Stevens. But the point is, is that it's very important look at the situation and go, Billy Donovan can develop young talent because that's where collegiate experience matters. That's what he does. That's what Brad Stevens took Butler to a national championship game because he developed talent. His best player was Gordon Hayward, who is currently on the Boston Celtics. And Billy Donovan had Corey Brewer, Joakim Noah. He had a lot of NBA guys and he, de- he developed and I think that's important. And and as far as Russell Westbrook going to Houston, people are going to say, oh, is it going to work? I think it will because they played together once before. And I think that what makes it work is that Russell Westbrook, as much flack as I give him, he's a triple-double guy. He gets his assists. Russ, Russell Westbrook will give up the ball to James Harden. Because now... I could argue it's James Harden's team now, completely. Because with Chris Paul there, you know, there was doubt, but now there's no doubt. And I'm not saying Russ is second fiddle, but it's James Harden's team right now. But what I also like, and this is very important, they still have Clint Capella, and that's important because now you have a nice nucleus there of Paul, who's gone, that nucleus that Paul Harden and Capella was not working. Now you have Westbrook, Harden, and Capella. That could be interesting. Because I believe he need to go somewhere with a rebounder like he had in Steven Adams. To have that big man in the middle. I think it's going to work. And in a future podcast, I'll probably rank. But I think it's way too early to rank these teams. You know, they still have to have a bench. They still got roster to fill their summer league. So there's much more to go with that. And speaking of much more to go, we're going to go and be right back with my LFL report. And that's next on Sports and the World. Sports and the world 
If you're listening through Breaker, Overcast, or Pocket Cast, thank you for listening and taking time out of your day. And now with the LFL report, if you didn't watch the Acoustic and Miss game, it was the game of the year. Hands down. I literally watched that game and said, this game could be a potential for the Legends Cup. These were the two best teams in the league, in my opinion. They had the two best, uh, I can say the two best quarterbacks. The two best coaches. They had the, they were, it was just a good game. And I can tell you that, in essence, it came down to two very important things. And this is where I stress the importance of time of possession and interceptions and turnovers. The Miss won the turnover battle. They had the ball for 24 minutes and 42 seconds to the acoustic 15 minutes and 18 seconds. But here's what the acoustic didn't do and which won them the game. The acoustic did not throw any, Michelle Angel did not throw an interception. And more importantly, and this is very important, they converted on third down, which we talk about, if I was talking about the NFL, those are the things I would talk about. I would talk about the turnovers, time of possession, and your conversion on third down. It's very important. And Acoustic checked the box on two of those. Yes, did Seattle did run the ball. They figured it out. Hand the ball to Stevie Schnorr because K.K. Matheny, and I love her, she didn't have the best game. And if you watch the game, Chris, her and Chris Michelson went at it. And Chris Michelson, hey, listen, he's a very intense guy. Listen, he's listen, he's probably the best coach in LFL history. He's like the Bill Belichick of the LFL. And he went after K.K. Matheny. Why? Because he, he saw what I saw. Two senseless interceptions. And and she only threw 54%. They threw the ball 33 times. 33 times. And they're going to complete 54%. Mike Oliveira and that team, Michelle Angel went 12 of 19 for 164. She, she had a 63% completion rate. KK Matheny, like I said, 18 for 33. She only threw for 122 yards. And, and I think Chris Michelson was getting frustrated for he had reasons to be but that defensive front for the Austin Acoustic the Dowdy sisters and you still got Megan Hansen they made the plays they had to make just like stopping the miss getting the two point conversion you know you know, the, the Miss got to the red zone and they, you know, they converted when they got there, but they couldn't get the two-point conversion. They made the plays that had to be made. And I'm pretty sure Houston, excuse me, Austin, you know, they didn't run the ball particularly well, you know, at least in the first half. You know, they gave the ball to Krista Harris, and I remember that long 19-yard run, and I said, 
that's the closer. I said that's Chris Dale Harris is the football equivalent of Mariano Rivera in the ninth inning for the Yankees. Well, you knew the Yankees had a lead in the ninth. How do you close the game? You get number 42 out of the bullpen. Mike Oliveira had a lead on the road. That was his closer. Having the best linebacker in LFL history, the GOAT. And that 19 yard run cemented the win on the road. And like I say, the acoustic offense, Michelle Angel's 63%. Cassandra Bills has three touchdown passes. Chris Michelson, that defense was bad. That secondary was bad. And and I was talking to somebody on Twitter and they said, you know, with Allie Alberts, and I said, I think they missed Allie more defensively than offensively. Because, you know, Stevie the Bull and Malloy, the running game was fine offensively. They could, you know, they could throw the ball. You know, when they, you know, like I say, not the clip I like, but they had a good run game. So they wouldn't have needed Allie Alberts that much offensively. Defensively, in all fantasy safety, they missed her. Because they got scorched for three touchdowns in the first half. And once again, the Mist figured out how to run the ball, and they took the ball to KK with Dini's hands. And mind you, listen, they have a whole month or so to see where they're seated. Because projectedly, right now, they could, they could just settle in as the second seed. Because all the Austin Acoustic has to do is just win one of their games, their next two games, and they're the one seed. They could, like I said, they're going to drop a game because they have to still have to play the Temptation, who was equally hot on the 27th. So I just can't get over how great that game was, and I think. The miss, Chris Michelson, they're going to fix it if they face this team again. It is a very strong possibility, thanks to the seeding. And how strong is the seeding? You know, the significance of the seeding changes? It's not by conference. It's by the four best teams. And 75% of, of, this, of this year's Legends Cup could very well come out of the, out of the West. With the steam coming, the lone team from the East. And I think I kind of went over my top two teams, you knew. I like the acoustic. They control their own destiny right now. Like I say, they need to win one more game. Whether that game, I think it's against the Knights or against the Temptation on July 27th. The Seattle Miss, the loss of Allie Alberts, boy, it showed defensively. It really did. The Temptation, Mariah Lopez and that great defense, T.J. Anderson, and Mo Gaxiola, you know, and the Snake, Salerno. Watch that video she did, the bottle cap the bottle cap challenge. Fantastic. And the Atlanta Steam, they win and they're in. A healthy Lauren Ziggler and Nicole Holtz. That's how they're going to win. You know, Dakota Hughes, they're going to win. You know, she's going to make, the cardiac kid's going to make the big play. I don't doubt that. But right now, a healthy Ziggler and Nicole Holtz right now is the key. And I mentioned the, next, the two biggest games left on this schedule, in my opinion. Temptation and Acoustic. 
and the heart and the steam, and that's just for playoff. Steam winning their end. Simple. So I figure we're winding down the season. There's about a month or so left. And my MVPs now, candidates are, I still got Jade Randall up there. I think she had, you know, listen, she's still up there simply because I still believe. And Bobby Hugo mentioned it a very good job and mentioned it. He, you know, the art of tackle. She's a football purist. And it reflected on that field. And I still have Mariah Lopez. She leads the lead in rushing. And I also threw in Michelle Lange because I always feel that you should always throw in the best player on the best team. And I think right now, that's Michelle Lange, that quarterback. You know, rookie of the year, I got Nicole Hulse, the running back from the team. And I throw in Lauren Crouch because I really do feel that finally the Omaha Heart have their franchise quarterback. I really do believe that. And coach of the year, I got Mike Oliveira. Listen, this team was winless. That was probably the best winless team a couple years ago, two, three years ago. He was two bad calls away from winning a championship. He, he, he's clearly ahead of Joel. They have a chance to go undefeated. He's the best coach. And, and next week, I'm going to dive into more and to go with what team compares to the NFL. I'm going to do all eight teams and compare them by the NFL franchise. But coming up next, I'm going to go with my WWE report and ask the question, Raw or SmackDown, who won in Extreme Rules? That's next on Sports and the World. sports and the world and if you're listening to us through Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, or Radio Public thank you for taking time to listen. I truly do appreciate it. And now I want to dive into WWE and let me tell you, you know, full discretion I think Raw took a step back this week and I think Raw, you know it wasn't bad, but it was reminiscent of how it was, you know, for the last couple of months. But SmackDown did better. But something in SmackDown happened that made it win, in my opinion. But I want to go through Raw. I'm going to talk about the matches separately from, what I, from the key points that I took. And, you know, I want to talk about Seth and Becky. You know, they beat Andrade and Vega. You know, and I rate the matches on the A to F scale. Now, you know, the typical school scale. To me, the match was a B. I gave it an 80. I don't think that, you know, I think what made me grade it so hard was that, you know, I guess having it a mixed elimination match didn't make any sense because if a situation arose that if Seth eliminated Andrade, it'd just be the women, and if it was just... And vice versa, it was just all too confusing for me. But I also took away from them that you know, the interview was better. Last, you know, the last week, there was it was a mess. 
but what I took away was that boy Baron Corbin and Lacey have looked very strong after they attacked Becky and Seth on the at the top of the ramp they look very strong and and I'll go into my prediction on that extreme rules a little bit later you know I also want to talk about the Paul Heyman promo he teases Brock Lesnar cashing in extreme rules I think that's more of a distinct possibility Smart Money says Kofi Kingston because I've, I've seen reports that he's probably injured but you know we'll see about that I want to talk about the, the Miz and the Usos they fought Elias in the Revival I thought it was a great match given in 85 it was a B you know it was a good match great match but it was a match nonetheless you know Lashley and Mysterio the Open Challenge I give it a D that was a squash match and I, I'm not too keen on squash matches with, you know, two major superstars, like, it was a jobber, and like, but, but these were two legit stars to, to make Bobby Lashley look good. He's gonna fight Braun Strowman in a last man standing match. So, we'll see how that goes. And then, you know, Drake Maverick, it was funny. I took away <laughs> the marriage consummation. To me, it was funny. I like Drake Maverick, and, you know, I like, you know, the, the 24-7 belt. And you know, our truth, I just like seeing him on TV every week. I like that too. You know, going back to another match, and Noah Jose versus Cesaro, the match that we didn't get last week. Cesaro looked very strong. I gave it a C because it was a short and sweet match. But we're going to talk about Cesaro a little bit later. And, and someone needs to explain to me the purpose of the Street Profits that, you know, on Raw. Are they the NXT Tag Team Champs or are they just pitchmen? Because they were just pitching for the Extreme Rules pay-per-view. They had the belt, but yeah, you took them off the Viking Raiders. I'm not going to go into a diatribe about that. But I'm not the only one that feels that way. Or, or maybe I am. Maybe it's just me being a cynic. And, you know, the Viking Raiders versus Colin and Devin Justin. I'll give that a D. Squash match. Squiggity squash. And we go into Ricochet in the Bullet Club. He fought all three, and I just kind of did a, a, a mean average of them. It was a C. You know, Carlin, you know, you know, I just gave it a, and Luke Gallo, I just gave it a mean grade there. And to me, it reminded me of the way the Bullet Club did John Cena, just beat him up. And they're doing the same thing to Ricochet. And, you know, I'm not saying to say Ricochet is John Cena. But I want to see how this one turns out. If it turns out the way it ended with John Cena, eh, I guess. And then you have the Beat the Clock challenge with Bailey fighting Sarah Logan and Cross, Nikki Cross will fight Dana Brooke. Whoever had the best time will choose the stipulation for the Magic Extreme Rules. So Bailey beat Sarah Logan. That was a B match. It was a good match. I like Sarah Logan. You know, since they broke up. You know, the you know the Ride Squad. But then Nikki Cross beat Dana Brooke in a faster time. That I get that a B match. So Nikki Cross chose the stipulation of a two on one handicap match. So, and to me, this feud between Bailey and Cross and Bliss be better if, if Alexa Bliss was more on the television and 
And it's go-home week, so why wasn't she there? Well, I guess with my concern. And Mike Kanellis, like, look, could be worse. Maybe not. Because now, the question like, would you get me pregnant again? Maria asked. Maria Kanellis asked Mike. So, of course, he said, I want to pregnant you again. And look, I, I really like this. I want this to work. I really like Maria very much. Even when she, you know, even years ago, I liked her. But with Mike and Ellis, like I said last week, you can only go up from here. Maybe, maybe not. And to me, what really brought down Raw, you know, you had Reigns and the, the GOAT, the janitor, Versus Shane McMahon and Drew McIntyre. This was a D match. It was terrible. It was awful. But it, this is what affected the gray when I found out. They lost the match, by the way. Reigns and that's the GOAT guy. Who was under the mask, you might ask? Cedric Alexander, and I ask you why. Are you going to push Cedric Alexander? This dude was chasing over the 24-7 belt, and all of a sudden, now you put him in a match with Roman Reigns in the go-home week. Extreme rules. Listen. I'm just going to say this, because I could really go in deeper. Maybe in a future podcast, I would. But this is just ridiculous. And at some point, if you're just going to keep plugging in people just for the sake of doing it, it's not going to work. Overall, I gave Raw the matches a D. It even it was a 69. Okay, it's a 69. And that's being and it and was it could have been a C show if and only if it wasn't Cedric Alexander. And it's not knocking Cedric, but like why use him in that capacity if you're not gonna push him? I don't think they're gonna push him. But speaking of pushing, let's push over to SmackDown. And SmackDown only had four matches by my count. You know, go to sport, at Sports the World on Twitter and Instagram if I missed one. But Kevin Owens, he won across both shows. He he dropped a huge pipe bomb. You know, he called out the McMahon over the fake promises that they made, and that's something I we talked about. I know I talked about it. Shane has too much power. And then Shane comes out, cuts the microphone, goes to the timekeeper, grabs that microphone, and he starts, he starts, you know, he's saying that the mockery of WWE superstars by the McMahon, you know, Paulo Cruz, Buddy Murphy, Oscar, Kyrie Sane, Liv Morgan, I believe he threw in there. That was the best promo I've seen, and that leads going to lead to something more later in the night. You know, speaking of the night, I'll just go. I'll just go through the matches real quick. There's only four. Nakamura fought Finn Balor non-title match. That was a good match. I gave it a B. Nakamura wins. You know, Nikki Cross, Carmella, Squiggity Squash, C match. Woods, Brian, Otis. That was a B. Otis wins in surprising fashion. And Roman Reigns, who hadn't fought on SmackDown since May, keep that in mind, 
you know, <laughs> beating Dolph Ziggler. Because I want to get into other things on SmackDown. I don't mean to rush, like, demagogue the show. But, like I said, there was the contract signed with Bailey, Cross, and Bliss. Of course, Alexa wasn't there. That let's go home week, where was she? The Iconics backstage. Maybe Sasha was right, and I said she was. And you hint, hint, we'll talk about that later too. And when will they ever defend the belts against the Kabuki Warriors? Because it's not going to be at Extreme Rules. So, take that as you will. Roman Reigns, great to see a promo that wasn't <laughs> likely about the match. It was great to see Roman Reigns on SmackDown for once, I guess, focusing on SmackDown business. And the SmackDown Tag Team Summit. Then you went over Big E with three-way and championship tips. I love them. It's just hilarious. And you know, with Aleister Black, he's going to fight Cesaro. I wasn't expecting Cesaro. And, I, and I'll be very curious to see that match in Extreme Rules because I like both dudes. I like their, especially Cesaro. That's why he looks strong. It's no way Jose, Jose in my opinion. And I want to bring up a point that Brian Zane from Wrestling with Regret, check out his channel. He brought up a point that was very true. Across both shows, five women showed up. Carmella, Sarah Logan, Dana Brooke, Bailey, and Alexa Bliss didn't show up. So Nikki, you know, five women. Like I said, I get it right. Sarah Logan, Dana Brooke, Nikki Cross, Bailey, and Carmella. That's it. If I miss one, tweet me, Instagram and Sports the World. And I think I bring that up because I really want this women's division to work, and it should work. You have too big, there's too much talent from Naomi, and like Kevin Owens, you brought up Kyrie, Sane, and Oscar, and Liv Morgan. Let's see them on a weekly basis. You know, I can't. I you can't have a women's match. You know, five women matches. I get that, but let's see them backstage. Let's see them have a presence. I guess is my point. Speaking of presence, you know, extreme rules. Extreme rules could be full of presence, like gifts. But we'll see. You know, the winner take all match. I I got Becky Lynch instead of Ronda retaining. I almost went Corbin and Evans. I almost did. I'm going to stick to my guns and stick with Balor and Lynch. Excuse me, Rollins and Lynch. I got Kofi beating Samoa Joe. Potential cash-in by Brock Lesnar. I think there. I think Reigns and Taker take care of Shane and Drew and end this feud. Thank God. I think Ricochet retains against Styles. Last night's standing match. I'm going to go with Lashley. Because, you know, it's safe pick says strong, but I'm going with Bobby Lashley. Because the potential, because I, I want to see Bobby Lashley push. I want to see both men push, but they only choose one. For the SmackDown Women's Championship, I think Bayley retains, and I think you'll see Sasha Banks, which is why I love the teaser. Because she was right. Because if you lead up all things that are true, she's going to show up. And I think she's going to be that side part, because Nikki Cross kind of hinted, you need somebody in your corner. I think that would be the boss. For the Raw Tag Team Championships, I want the Usos to win. I don't hate the Revival, but I like the Usos. They're consistent. 
SmackDown tag team belts. I'm gonna go. I'm going heavy machinery. I almost went toward either retaining, but I I, I want to see heavy machinery. I think Otis winning. That could be like a faux cover, you know, cover up. You know, like okay, well, give them this win. They're gonna win at Extreme Rules, but I want them to win at Extreme Rules. Alistair Black Cesaro, I think Alistair Black wins in a great match. That might be a secret match of the night. In the Cruiserweight Championship, I think Drew Gulak retains against Tony Nese. In Extreme Rules, watch on the WWE Network. You know, not, you know, you know to watch it this Sunday. But coming up next, we wrap up this episode of Sports in the World with my big picture of hypocrisy. That's next, the sports and the world. And welcome back into the final segment here of sports and the world. And if you've listened in this far, I truly do appreciate it. The social media for both Twitter and Instagram is at SportsTheWorld. Find me there. You can tweet, DM, post any comments of what you think of the show, what to add to the show, to take away from the show. Anything would be truly appreciative. And now I want to dive into my big picture, and I want to talk about hypocrisy. In this particular hypocrisy in my big picture, I want to talk about two particular sports, and that's baseball in the NFL. And I'm sure at some point this topic will rear its head again. And when it does, I'll guarantee you it'll be in this segment. When I think of hypocrisy, I think of when people essentially tell us certain things about our lives. They tell us that, you know, you shouldn't raise your kids that way because they'll turn out this way. And then come to find out that their kid ends up turning the way that they said yours was going to turn out. Or someone will tell you, well, if you keep if you keep doing this, this will happen. That's the point I'm trying to convey. Sports is no different. Sports will tell you one thing and then do a complete 180. And sometimes it comes from the athletes, comes from different capacities. Things that you experience in your everyday lives. As I mentioned, you'll have that boss that'll tell you, well, if you work hard, you could be a boss someday. Only to find out that your boss does not even work half the hours you do. And yet you're not the boss. And in fact, you've been at the job longer than your boss. So it's very hypocritical to sit there and say that well, hard work will get you here when you kind of let go. No, I need much more than that. So with that being said, I want to go into the baseball and talk about something that all-star pitcher Justin Verlander, who I like, who the Houston Astros said recently before the all-star break, and he talked about the number of home runs, and he said that the balls used in Major League Baseball games this season are, quote, a effing joke. And he believes 100% that the league has implemented juice ball to increase offense. And that came from ESPN.com. And 
this is where I say I do want to say that man this guy has a point but I also say on the other hand where I think it could be a little bit of saltiness and I'll get to that in a minute but this is what kind of validates Justin Verlander's point right now at the All-Star break there have been 3,691 home runs hit. And it's on pace to be 6,668 home runs hit this season. That's going to shatter the record from two years ago, which was 6,105 home runs. And that came from BaseballReference.com. And also ESPN brought up that number on pace for 6,668 home runs. And I think Justin Verlander was right. I'm not saying he's, he's, he's right. You know, of course, Rob Manfred, MLB commissioner, he denied it. And I don't, you know, I don't think the balls are juiced. I think Rob Manfred, when he talked about when he first became commissioner about four years ago, he was more worried about pace of play. And now you know the game moving not super fast, but it's moving faster than what it was having the batters in and out of the box, timing, you know, he's more about pace of play, he said the offense will come, and he's absolutely right, and he's been right, but this is where I say the hypocrisy from Justin Verlander kicks in, well, you know, you know, I believe the balls are juiced, and the home run are being hit, well, who leads the league? And home runs allowed? It's Justin Verlander. And he allowed 30 home runs all season in 2016. He's on pace to probably break that. And if someone like Madison Bumgarner, Hunjin Ryu, any other pitcher comes and says that, I would probably say right on. And I don't, like I said, I don't think Verlander's wrong. But to say that, it's kind of salty when you're leading the league and giving up home runs. You're just, because you give up a lot of home runs and, and you're the league leader. And for the record, he's fourth active in home runs allowed behind Sabathia, Erwin Santana, and Cole Hamels. Verlander's at 298. He's going to easily, he could easily be third on the list potentially second by the end of this season at the rate that he's talking about. I think it's very hypocritical to come and say, oh, well, the balls are juiced, but you're the ones giving up. You, you give up the most home runs. So that lets me know that maybe you need to look in the mirror. And listen, I like Justin Verlander. And this is no knock. I have him as a Cy Young favorite. But when you say it, it doesn't have the same or je ne sais quoi because you're the guy that's giving up all the home you lead the league not just the American League you lead the you lead baseball in home runs allowed this season and you're the fourth active player to give up home runs you're 298 Bumgarner's on that list if Bumgarner complains okay yeah because the balls are juiced because that guy does not give up home runs Kershaw any of those dudes say it, I'm like, okay. Even Verlander, if any pitcher says it, I agree. 
when you look into the numbers, I look at Verlander and I went, he's giving up a lot of home runs. That could be misconstrued as being salty. And speak of saltiness, the NFL has had a history of being salty on free speech. And it's not just with the kneeling thing. But what I'm going to do for you, and you can play, well, guess that quote. I'm going to read you a quote. And this is from NFL.com. I'm going to read you the whole quote. I'm going to read you a piece of the quote. It talks about the, the anthem and the kneeling. And Roger Goodell gave it away. Said he wanted to, quote, advance the goal of justice and fairness in all corners of our society. I'm sorry, I had to give it away. I couldn't hold on to it. My apologies. Because I was really thrown back. Because that sounds like a guy who would support the kneeling, right? Wrong. And I'm not sitting there and saying Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job because of that. Because, look, there's other factors. Kaepernick made a choice. That's his choice. I want to give you about six, seven examples of hypocrisy. Where the league, the league will tell you, quote, Goodell, the head of the league, will tell you to advance the goals of justice and fairness in all corners of our society. So that's religion, that's social issues, anything to promote awareness. So, so to the five folks at politicalinsider.com, they gave me six, seven examples of where that quote by Roger Goodell is very hypocritical. Remember in 2012 with Tim Tebow and the kneeling? He kneeled too. But we're talking about he wore John's 316 as part of his blackout. The NFL made him take it off. Next year, 2013, Brandon Marshall was fined for wearing green cleats to raise awareness people with mental health disorders. Oh, no, it, it, gets, it gets worse. The next year, RG3 wore short, a shirt saying, No Jesus, No Peace. Before he entered a post-game press conference, he was forced to turn it inside out by NFL uniform inspector before speaking at that podium. Fast forward 2015, D'Angelo Williams, the running back, former running back, was fined for wearing Find the Cure Eye Black for breast cancer awareness. Same year, William Gay was fined for wearing purple cleats to raise awareness for domestic violence. I know. I know. 2016, the NFL prevented the Cowboys from wearing a decal on their helmet in honor of five Dallas police officers after they were killed in the line of duty. And lastly, in the same year, 2016, they threatened to find players who would want to wear cleats to commemorate the 15th anniversary of 9-11. That's just, I gave you a rundown of seven examples. Could I have gone deeper? I could have told you the domestic violence thing. That's why I said I know, I know. But Roger Goodell, the commissioner, said, quote, to advance the goals of justice and fairness in all corners of our society. When he talked about protests, when he talked about the first... Because that's what he said. 
show me where you know the eye black to express your religion show me where you want to promote awareness whether it's for mental health or breast cancer awareness or promoting it for domestic violence or honoring five officers and honoring those on 9-11 or or your faith show me where that quote advances the goal advance the goals of justice and fairness in all corners of our society that's hypocrisy and this is where listen I'll be the first to say about Colin Kaepernick I didn't initially agree and there's parts of me that still doesn't because I felt it just wasn't about him and the cause I felt it put too much attention on him and it took away from the football and listen he had a right to do what he did you know when he had a former name you know Green Beret you know support I listen that's when I said okay I support his right to do I never denied that even though I didn't agree with it I said that look yes it's right but there are consequences what you do just like at your job if you choose to clock out of work 15 minutes early don't be shocked to find out that you may not have a job Monday or if you go on this big Twitter Facebook or social media rant about your boss don't be shocked if you get called into the office that Monday don't be shocked don't be like oh was I called in? You know why? Because you messed up. That's consequences. Colin Kaepernick knew the consequences. But the NFL, like Roger Goodell, I'll read it to you one more time. So these NFL players believe that they had the first, because they heard their commissioner say that things like taking a knee, protesting, to advance the goals of justice and fairness in all corners of our society. All of those things was to promote justice and some level of fairness? Yes. To promote fairness and awareness. To have to be fair to promote those of breast cancer awareness, mental health, domestic violence. That's in all corners of our society. Just promoting justice and fairness for those causes that may not otherwise be talked about. Man, the platform and the league told him no. But yet, with domestic violence, this is the same league that essentially gave Ray Rice two games. They're like, oh. And they gave what the kicker for the Giants. This thing, and I'm like, it's hypocrisy. How can you talk about advancing the goals of justice? Where's the justice for? Where's the justice? You gave them a second chance, and all they want to do is promote causes, and they get punished. It's not right, and it's not fair. You know it, and I know. Well, what I know that you may also know that that is our time for this episode of Sports in the World. Once again, thank you for taking time out of your day. I truly do appreciate it. 
until I see you or hear you next time as we take this journey of sports and the world.